0: This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Could you tell us who you are, where you are speaking from, and what you do?
1: I'm Matt Barnes, and I'm speaking from my house today, crammed in a little bedroom. And I'm the director of design and architecture studio, Ken. And we kind of design anything from installation work all the way up to buildings. And we just designed three sets of tables, so a bit of everything, really.
0: So beyond doing a bit of everything, how would you define your... Approach to architecture.
1: Ah, uh, this is a bit of a difficult one. We start with kind of the plan and space, and how the, how the uh, if we're talking on the building scale, plan and space, and how it flows and how it responds to the client's needs, and then then it's really about reference. I call it reference heavy, where really, we just gathering sort of ideas and small threads of thought from the client. They're backstory their history their likes dislikes and then we start layering it up in uh, random is probably the wrong word but a loose a loose way and then to see how these various different references fit together and I I think that's mainly because I come from more of like an art background in terms of my interests and my education and I always find with architecture especially I find my sort of memories of buildings when I was younger—it uh, was the oddities and the surreal bits of it that are in the memories. Like you know, for instance, oh that—I remember that round window in my house, or I remember the the, the way the steps were slightly different sizes. Go, and those sort of memories—you never remember a bog standard kitchen. So I, I, I'm keen to try and sort of amplify these oddities in the architecture, and so that they. Provide a frame of reference for people's memories, I guess.
0: You've already kind of alluded to this, but what, what led you into architecture? What, what, or, or, or maybe the question is, what caused you to move from that art background into architecture?
1: I think well, the classic architect answer to this, I guess, is you know, I, I started drawing plans when I was three, or I was born for architecture, <laughs> and mine is a rather mundane story. Um, but my school, where I come from in Cardiff, the sort of design career was not really presented to the students. And, you know, you went to careers advice and they say, do you like animals? Were you going to be a vet? Do you like care of people? Are you Are going to be a nurse or a doctor? And if you didn't do any of them, you, you're going to be an apprentice in electrician, whatever. So I, I went to do, because I like animals, I was uh, put in a PDSA vet thing for my work experience. And, then I discovered I really hated blood. So I <laughs> quickly changed tact. And one of my one of my mates had done a work experience at Cadu, which is the Welsh version of historic England. And that sort of piqued my interest a bit. But I was really, really wanted to be fine art design based. But then my mum basically said she had she had some money that she was going to give me to go to UNO or pay for my fees. And she said, "I'm not paying for you to do a fine art course. You've got to do a vocation." <laughs> so I went into architecture, but initially I didn't actually get the grades to get into architecture school. So I did a art and design foundation course at a uh, art college just uh, up near merthyr in South Wales, and that really opened my mind my mind to the possibilities of uh, architecture. As a profession and also because the course was structured in a way that you did a bit of animation, a bit of graphics, a bit of fashion, a bit of product design. That really formed my background and thinking for architecture, which I think is then carried through. And I think failing or not failing, but not getting a to at School originally would really was a good thing in my career progress and what I'm interested in now, I guess.
0: And what about your sort of architectural inspirations the kind of antecedents for your work i guess a lot of critics have kind of looked at your work and immediately kind of thought postmodernism mm. so could you kind of talk about your relationship to postmodernism is that uh, an accurate label to kind of attach to at least some of what you're doing or or is there a kind of broader set of inspirations and I guess yeah. more sort of philosophical reference points as opposed to sort of. That's
1: really tricky one with this because I, I do look to a lot of postmodern architecture from, you know, sixties through to the eighties as kind of like references and idea forming, but it's an easy label to put on anything that isn't beige brick and timber cladding. So it's, it's, uh, it's, I find it quite reductive in that sense. And I'm desperately trying to get away from irony or piss taking is probably the correct word <laughs> uh, you know I, I'm trying to get away from this easily label it as silly architecture and move more into actually trying to you know this is a this is an approach which provides which results in interesting places to live interesting places to look at and experience and I've, I found it especially from doing mountain view the responses have been sort of quite telling you like every everyone who's not an architect is very interested in like you know the colors are oh, wow that's this this you know there's a mountain and it doesn't need to I think what's critical about this this whole like reference heavy approach is that it needs obviously needs to stand up without the references being explained for instance, you know, the the surreal and the oddities need to be of a, a certain strength to carry it without the references. In terms of like, I didn't answer the question yet, <laughs> in terms of uh, references or inspiration, at the moment, it's main, like, I, I keep, I, I try to keep avoiding this, but I keep going back to the Winton guest house, Frank Gehry, Early Doors, but, His approach, I'd say, my approach is a lot more story-based. His approach at the time, looking in, it seems more curation of objects and objects in space and still life compositions rather than any like intrinsic references or stories to the place or the people and that sort of thing. So I'm trying to add this extra layer of reference in. And apart from, I very rarely look to architecture Or contemporary architecture for references, because to be honest, I find a lot of it quite, especially in the UK, very boring, very just not inspiring. So I tend to look at artists or sculptors. So I guess in terms of icons that I look at, like Gaetano Pesci is a real winner for me, and his sort of like work ranges from architecture all through to like furniture design and but approaches much more as an art of an as an artist rather than a designer or architect who else there's a lot of like young youngish sculptors who would this one called audrey large who does these amazing 3d printed quite like grotesque sculptures and they've got this hologram effect on them because they're done in layers so like that you know, those lenticular images where you see from one side or the other, like these sculptures are amazing. I think that's more of a material interest rather than a, uh, you know, conceptual interest. Uh, but then there's other sculptures like Al Freeman, who does these like squishy sculptures. Like, Who, was it? who what was the name of the guy who did the big binoculars with, in the Frank Gehry building? Klaus Oldenburg. Yeah, similar to that, but on a much more squishy level. I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, so a lot about outside architecture. And I, I, try, to, I try to work with painters or designers uh, outside of the field on as many of the smaller projects as I can, as we did with the, with the John Soane show uh, with Harry Lawson, just to get a different approach to idea production and
0: design process. You mentioned your, your Mountain View project, and I, I wonder if you might tell the story of that sort of thinking about the origins of it that that process that idea production and how it manifested in built form
1: I think the the project itself is very unusual in its inception and completion I guess because it is my own house and obviously as your own client and architect you can sort of develop these ideas as you go and you don't have to sound them out and prove them before you can detail them and build them so to be honest we got the house in a fairly derelict state and lived there for a couple of months and then we needed to move out because one of the ceilings fell in and it was a pretty dire situation and got planning permission at that stage the only real design I'd done was developing the floor plan and making the spaces work trying to input some of these leftover spaces which are kind of i guess the oddities i mentioned earlier so a little little leftover nooks and crannies where there's no real program but just for things to develop in them and and subsequently they become working from home desk or pretend working from home desk for my daughter or a window seat and all uh, all of these kind of things so we've got the plan and the mountain at that stage, was the only things we put in for planning, super simple planning drawings and not describing it as a mountain. Then we, the builder started as soon we got planning permission, and then all of the interiors and ideas came from as we were on site. So we had the mountain because we wanted to create this, I guess, oxymoron of this massive, heavy mountain with this thin, structural, fragile frame. In structural terms, it's a fairly simple extension you know, there is a box on the back of the house and then we've got these three structural columns which then hoist what is a water jet cut mountain so it's a, a, a really thin I guess you call it a billboard uh, a billboard made of foamed aluminium which is just like it's like an aero bar so it's got this through the molten aluminium they pass various size bubbles through it and then it sets and then it's super lightweight. It's, you could lift the whole mountain. It's like six metres long, three metres high, and you can lift it all in, in one sheet. And so this is literally stuck onto a subframe, and it sits above these three spindly columns. And the idea being that what's the heaviest thing we can put up there? And the sort of tongue-in-cheek had this mountain. And it was during the Sone Show research, actually, that we discovered the images of the... Bob sled Matterhorn ride in Disneyland being built, which is this super realistic fake mountain. And you get, you've got this bobsled which goes through it and outside it. But when they were making it, they built this ridiculous steel frame that looked like it had just been thrown up. And then they built the concrete down or the, the concrete fake mountain down from the top to the bottom. So there's these pictures during construction where you've got this spindly steel frame and this hyper realistic mountain on the top and uh, I, i thought it was kind of the perfect design reference and solution for what we were trying to achieve really that was all before we got planning and then the ideas of landscape and these different kind of spaces came through design of the interiors. so we've got the cave-like concrete wall, which is sort of this rough concrete basically just thrown on the wall by the contractor. And then we've got designed a table like a lake. So it's got this, this steel enamel ripple with, with these different tones coming through it. Further from that, you can see, you could hear the sound of loose, loose connection design process going on here. So we then moved ideas of how do you, my wife's study geography and so we then we're talking about how, how do you record the landscape so then all of the columns became ranging poles and then we have these survey marker tiles dotted around the floor and on some of the walls and then they were elevated, we've got these checkerboard walls which are taken from the survey marker, checkerboard this kind of thread I guess of tying things through and then we've got seemingly random bits added in we've got the this ruined wall which we always wanted to do like a memory of the the, the existing building and we we were talking about ideas of a lot of this came from the sewn show you know and the references that we were and these drawings that we were looking at me and harry were looking at when we were developing the ideas for that so we obviously sewn ideas of a building is a, a project is never isn't complete when it's been finished construction, you know, the scaffolding, the construction, the design, and then it's eventual ruin a part of the whole process. And that was the idea with the ruined wall. So we wanted to design and build the or leave the archetypal ruined wall. And there's that scene in trainspine which in my mind, was like the archetypal ruined wall or precarious building. So we've got these ruined walls framed by these two columns and the steel above. We didn't. The, the columns are actually non-structural. They were purely just imitate the view in the scene and then frame the view out and the ruined walls themselves.
0: And I encourage our listeners to look up photographs of what Matt has described because it's, it's quite staggering. Uh, you've already alluded <clears throat> to this already, um, talking about the sort of the, the attention that the project has has got. And I, I wanted to ask sort of more specifically about reactions to your work, both popularly and within the sort of architectural community. You, you mentioned the, the project we did uh, at the Soane Museum back in early 2020, just before uh, the first lockdown. And... That project was actually nominated for a AJ Small Projects Award. And I was, I was interested in, in the kind of the context in which your work operates. You know, that project in the museum, it's a cultural project. And then uh, the Mountain View house extension that operates in a completely different world and, and the extent to which that perhaps part, in part determines how certainly the sort of critical Opinion mm. uh, on your work uh, is formed.
1: Say, for instance, the certain the CERN show. I think that
0: the approach and the, the the
1: aesthetic and all of that, you know, can be is easier to explain in a in the context and uh, the cultural context of, of the exhibition. And I almost feel that you know the architects or the critics whoever allow that kind of aesthetic in a, a small sort of limited aspect, you know, almost like that's not really architecture, but they, they can do that over there. It's in, and it's
0: in, a, in a gallery space. And yeah. and The normal rules are suspended.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, you know, it was a temporary exhibition, so it's non-permanent. But then as soon as you get to the architectural side, there's a lot of, touched on it earlier, but a lot of, well, boring architecture. I think basically there's a very prominent area of the profession especially in london and uk who just have this sort of like idea that their rarefied taste is i mean it's always been the way but rarefied taste is they're an expert in it and that's how it should be and everything else is just silly or the wrong approach or bad taste i think it comes down to laziness to be honest the this kind of beige brick and and nice woods I mean, it's got no depth to it. It's in my mind, coming from an art background, architecture is more of an art than a than a science. And I think, no matter how 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 much they stroke their chins about. What kind of what tone of brick it is? It's it's just a brick at the end of the day. It's got <laughs> there's no like conceptual idea, or you're not what are you trying to convey? And I think that really is a problem when when it comes to talking to the public about architecture. So for instance, I got a client up in uh, Lincolnshire, and who's a farmer, and we were dis- and we're designing a house for him, converting uh, an old RAF building uh, his farm is basically on a world war Two airfield anyway so i was looking we we're talking about precedents for houses and i was talking about the Zumptor house in the secular retreat in devon and how it's a similar size floor plate to ours and just talking about the spatial design and it was quite interesting when we were discussing he we talking about this barrier between architects and the public and he was saying what we had proposed, in his words, he really liked it. And uh, he described it as all the people building on a uh, building this are gonna be like really interested in it because it's just a bit odd or it's a bit weird, it's a bit, you know, unusual. And when they looking at the the Zumto house, he said I can see this is a very nice building and it's been very carefully designed, but it's it's for architects, it's not for the general public. To appreciate, and you almost feel secondary, in, in you, you, you're not allowed to appreciate the architecture because it's too highfalutin or whatever.
0: I always think it's very telling that the Reba Awards are judged by other architects so it's architects marking their own homework and there is a kind of sop to non-architects via the sort of lay assessor they call them which is the most patronizing (laughs) description of of a of a non-architect you could possibly imagine but I think ultimately it's part of this this tendency towards a type of conformity and and towards a type of architecture that the public aren't that interested in
1: yeah and this is some sort of the gatekeepers of taste and it's like well who gave you the keys it's not it's not design is a skill but you know you're designing for a client and and often the, the client is the public so to not take their thoughts on board it just seems and to design something which you wouldn't understand about this type of concrete because it's the type of grave, blah, blah, blah. blah. And it's just like, come on, mate.
0: (laughs) And you're not alone insofar as there are other architects who are working in, I guess, broadly equivalent ways. A number in London, for example. Uh, I wonder, do you feel any kind of sort of kinship with them, and does this is this a kind of is this a help to your work, or is it a hindrance to be sort of potentially lumped together with some of these other architects?
1: Depends who you mean. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you you can name you can. No, name. Yeah,
1: no I, no, I I think it's good. I, I'm my friends with a lot of them, and I think I, out of London, I was up with the studio met guys the other day up in Liverpool, and I feel really I haven't talked about it yet. But um this whole grouping of multiform. I think normally I'm very quite against labeling of the work. You know, the po- I think that's probably come from this postmodernism label, which is unhelpful. But the multiform thing, I feel it, it really makes a bunch of outliers into a, a more powerful group, if that makes sense. And you can share ideas and and but also progress the, the revolution. We'll all be at the front. <laughs> On the front line when the revolution happens, I think it's good because you, if, you, if you're an outlier and you just one, then it's easier to disregard you as a uh, by the profession, as an outlier or someone. I guess the classic is Will, Will also, he's always seen as an outlier. and
0: Yeah, and he, he never really delivered on his promise, I suppose.
1: Yeah, did,
0: did amazing things, but it never felt that the built work. Quite lived up to its potential, or yeah. the potential that he had.
1: Yeah, I don't know too the story, but I always feel like commercial interests kind of. I don't know. The pack of is obviously great, and but then winning the Stirling Prize, you then get this commercial interest, and then an uh, off-track pushed to off. I don't know.
0: I mean, multi-form is is a sort of loose loose fit. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I think it. what I liked about it is you know it's loose and it doesn't pigeonhole everyone, and it gives so it gives a certain level of grouping to to talk in those contexts if you need to and yeah like I say a camaraderie
0: you've mentioned this um this project converting an RAF former RAF building uh but I wanted to ask about what's what's kind of coming up and and what are your sort of broader aspirations over the next few years so this this RAF
1: building is going into planning in the new year and that's a really interesting one, actually, because this this part of an earlier question. Part of my process is I, talk to, I, I tend to talk to a lot of people about ideas as I'm designing just to get thoughts and just I'm, I'm quite open with uh, discussing things because I think that's really helps projects. So I've been talking a lot to people about the RF building, which is an old operations block, basically planned all of the bombing raids from the airfield that it was located on. Solid brick building, no windows pretty weird, weird program before. And, but then they're chatting about these ideas that actually military architecture is kind of like the other end of the, the spectrum to house architecture in terms of its function and feeling and, you know, these people occupying this building when it was in use were, were pilots who didn't know if they were going to come back after their seven-hour bombing raids in Hamburg or wherever they went. And it's kind of it's it's a very serious, dark subject. And so, how do you do can style or what not style, but you know a a can approach where it's often regarded as fun or silly or? uh, But how do you convey the history of the place and those represent those dark memories, but still? have a really nice house to live in. So I'm toying with those. So we got a Lancaster bomber-shaped roof light is the, the key at the moment, <laughs> uh, which sounds a bit stupid, but I think, it should, I think it'll work great. Um, in terms of other stuff going on, we, we're pitching quite a bit for sort of cultural, small-scale stuff, so pavilions and stuff like that. And that's always with an external artist or sculptor. Uh, I think larger aspirations... I always thought when I was younger or when I first started to know about architecture, the bigger the better, but I totally disagree with that now. I think, I think it's all about facilitating larger public buildings. So I want to grow the practice to just for that very reason. Obviously, you need to be a certain scale to be able to take on those projects, but public facing and public use is definitely where I want to be heading, because at the moment, a lot of our projects are, well, 99% of our projects are for private clients, whether they're artist studios, houses, that level. So the the majority of the public only ever experienced them on the internet in pictures. So I really want to get past that. And it's interesting that actually a lot of people come to the house always say wow this feels so much different than in the pictures because pictures there's almost uh, an immediate focus on the bright colors and all the, the shiny materials whereas actually the space is volumetrically quite big you know this, the kitchen ceiling is like four meters tall so that really gives a different dynamic it's hard to get across in the pictures. So yeah definitely more public facing and public use buildings would be great. Because then you start to have different conversations about references and the community references and stories and bringing those through.
0: Matt Barnes, thank you very much.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.